What's going on, guys and gals? My name is Chris Tondevold, and this is Ambition Radio. This is a podcast where we try to find people that have found that balance between their life, family, career, and the pursuit of their passions, dreams, or hobbies. This week, we have Aaron Frisbee of the band The O6 and This Could Go Boom, a nonprofit dedicated to amplifying the voices of the marginalized, including women, non binary people, and people of color through music. We talk about the formation of the OSIX, the transformation and growth of This Could Go Boom, and how much California sucks. We recorded this at my house. You'll hear my old man of a dog, Elliot, click-clacking away here and there. He wanted all of Aaron's attention. Really, it was just a bit rude. Editing this episode kicked my ass. I'm still learning that process, and this episode took way too long. I'm still not 100% happy with it. If anyone is trying to do this for me for the cheap cheap, let me know. I'm over it. The 06 and This Could Go Boom has a bunch of stuff coming up, including the DC Music Summit this weekend, February 1st and 2nd, I believe, a show with the Shivas and Cinema Hearts on February 20th at Comic Ping Pong in DC. I'll have a link in the show notes to donate to This Could Go Boom, and if anybody feels like donating me some money, I have Venmo and Cash App. Hook it up. As always, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, follow me on Spotify, and subscribe on Google Play or however you get your podcast. Thank you for everything. Here's a show. Enjoy. I want to talk about last night's show. So how did that go? This was your first few times in Baltimore, right? Yes. All of a sudden, we've gotten to play in Baltimore several times, which is really exciting. When I when I was in high school, I and, and even in the beginning of college, I spent more time in Baltimore than D.C., mm-hmm. and... Love the music scene there. My first band was kind of a Baltimore band. We've gotten to play some really cool places there with some really good bands. Last night we were at the Undercroft, which is an all-ages sober space. It's um, That's cool. Yeah, it was very cool, and we had a great crowd. We were playing with um, Friday Junior, Bakai, and Muscle. Really good bill. They've got a great stage. It's one of those stages that makes you feel like you're in um, an old-school, like, auditorium kind of where they're going to put on like a play (laughs) it's like one of those really high ones yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. like sort of the lip that comes out so that was fun the sound was great i don't know anything that's happening in baltimore um especially since charm city closed i don't know any underground shows or anything like that because as soon as that place shut down everybody seemed to kind of go like in houses or other spaces that I've never even heard of. So that's cool that that's happening. I didn't even know that there were actual like sober places or anything like that. Yeah, it's becoming more and more of a trend. And I, I've always loved the idea of all ages spaces because it it does a disservice to music as a community event and as a cultural institution. And it kind of does a disservice to musicians as well to exclude people by age or to pretend gatherings for live music are only for a specific age. Because, I mean, just from a practical standpoint as a musician, it's like, how many people do you want to hear your music? Do you want to limit it to just, like, a handful of people? Do you want to be one of those bands who gets stuck thinking, like, wow, I'm doing really well, and then you get out of college and you're like, oh, wait, my friends have jobs and kids and stuff now (laughs) and they don't come to shows anymore. Yeah, and then, yeah, it's... It's really difficult down here in Southern Maryland, too, because there are no all-ages places at all. And then all the people that have been playing music have been playing music for the past, like, 20 years. They've all grown up, which is cool, so they can all play at the bars, but there's no, like, new blood. So it's not like the cities, it's not like D.C. or Baltimore, where there is a lot more of that underground because it's way more spread out. So you don't have kind of that capability to really 
get close-knit communities and, and neighborhoods and you're not seeing the same people out all the time because it's such a harder thing to do. So we don't have the, the all-ages clubs down here, which is very unfortunate because then we don't have any new blood to kind of fill in the, the ranks. And to your point, you don't have any new people to play to because it's right. all the same friends and family that now can just drink and that's the reason why they go to shows. I was I was born in Arkansas, and a lot of my mom's side of the family was musical. Um, I even, like, pretty recently went to a family reunion several years ago, and when they got together, they sang, like, uh, sacred cool. harp kind of stuff. So it was music that people can connect on really quickly and easily because they know the same music. Um, and my mom played, and we, you know, when I was a kid, after dinner, she would play songs. We would sing songs. And I love hearing when people are doing that, either, like, with their family or just get-togethers, because that is something that you can do in any space. You can play music with other people. Um, this Could Go Boom does a workshop um, in conjunction with Seven Drum City the first Sunday of every month, and it's uh, it's called Collective Sound, and it's an intro to improving with other people. And that's basically the whole point is that you can be at any skill level. You can be someone who's never even picked up an instrument before, and you can come into a space with other people and make music together. Yeah, that's actually really, really important because uh, I have two guitars and I play by myself. I don't know what I'm doing, but whenever Selena will come over and she'll show me some stuff, and I was like, I don't know how you even did any of that. And then there was one time we actually played together for a hot second. I was like, this is amazing. I should do this <laughs> way more. And I just don't. So, so yeah, that, I have that experience with Selena too, where I'm just like, how did you do that? <laughs> it makes me so mad. It was like, hey, I have this idea. You should listen to it. And she'll be like, oh, this is the five ways that you can make it better. And I was like, thanks. Thanks for making me feel like the worst for even coming up with mm. the idea. Like, it's it's nice that I came up with this idea, but I don't want to feel bad about it because you're just so much better than I am. That's actually, the, that's like, the worst thing you can get stuck in is playing with a group of people where you're the most experienced and skilled person um, and not ever expanding beyond that. Not that there, I mean, there are things to learn from everyone. I learn stuff from my music students all the time and just from the practice of going back to basics. Mm -hmm. But... The sweet spot is when you get to play with someone who's way better than you. <laughs> you just, you, you get better, you learn things. It's like a privilege to get to play with someone who's got a lot of time and experience and skill put into it. Yeah. How was uh, growing up in Arkansas with music? Um, so I moved from Arkansas to right outside of New Orleans in third grade. Okay. So my musical experience in Arkansas was mostly... Um, my grandparents' church, which did, like, sacred harp, like, shape note singing kind of stuff. And um, I sang and actually performed with my mom, and we did, like, traditional stuff kind of uh, through, like, 60s folk, like some Joan Baez kind of stuff and, like, Carter family, old spirituals, things like that. So my mom was playing guitar and mountain dulcimer and auto harp and singing, and I had learned how to sing harmony with her pretty early on because I think I started performing with her when I was about four. That's incredible. And there were like these like folk theaters and things that we would go. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was it was really fun. Did you uh, have any kind of stage fright at all? No. Up? No? Oh. 
that's that's gotta that's gotta be like a secret talent of yeah. having, having that in there and not having to like face any any kind of super adversity. In I there. developed some later, but as a kid, it's like. I feel like, yeah, I don't know, so many things, like, if you just start doing them when you're a kid, it's just like, oh, well, this is just normal. Yeah, everything's easier. And you're pretty, I mean, when you're four or five, like, you're pretty confident that you're pretty awesome. <laughs> you haven't, like, had the world beat you down yet. Right. Tell you otherwise. Right. Um, for the most part. And I, some people don't have that experience, unfortunately. Unfortunately. But, um, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely later on in life had when some, you- like, nervous energy. Well, when you came across that, how did you handle any of that? I think that the I think that our our emotions are more vague than we think they are. Mm-hmm. Um and that we assign sort of more detailed meaning to them based on like what we need and our experience and like what we're used to. And so a lot of that generalized sort of amped up anxious feeling you can choose to translate that as nerves or you can choose to translate it as just excitement or energy um and so i i wouldn't want to get on stage now and not have like a little bit of that feeling of like oh here we go but on top of that it's it's also just doing it over and over and over again and still every once in a while like I'll, you know, have played the same song a million times and get out there and, like, for some unknown reason, it's, like, that night. And it'll be, like, you know, for a crowd of 10 people and, like, all of a sudden I'm, like, <laughs> oh, not tonight. Well, it was it was funny. So I've talked to multiple people and they've said that sometimes the smaller crowds are the more intimidating ones because you can see the full reactions and see them if they are connecting or not. Right. And that's that's a little bit more daunting than playing against five or six thousand people or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. But I think it's also a matter of like that's kind of why you're making the music and right. singing it with people in the room is to make that connection. And so I talk to a lot of my students about this, and it's difficult because you want to be super honest. Mm-hmm. And so that can leave you very, very exposed emotionally. But when I was younger, I think that I thought that you had to like totally, totally expose yourself in like a a way that wasn't healthy on stage in a way that was just going to like really tap you into like hard emotions that. Right. And you had to like do it in a very, very raw way in order for it to be truthful. And now I think they're like really good healthy ways to prepare for like being tapped in emotionally to a song and not do it in a way that's going to like break or hurt you. I generally try to like take some like breaths, some like what feels like mm-hmm. slow breaths before I start singing <laughs> and sort of sink into like what the song is and and how I connect to it. But I don't think you should shy away from that either. I think yeah. that that connection with audiences that's why we're kind of all here. Well, that's just connection with people in general, right? So trying to balance between being open enough to make a a real connection and kind of safeguarding some of your stuff in there and kind of reserving some of that to where you're not fully making yourself vulnerable to full pain. Um, I would assume, too, like when you're younger, 
And you see that in younger bands that are, are high energy, that are trying to bring out as much emotion as possible. Like this mm-hmm. is everything's on the line for them because this is the most important thing in their life. And this is the way that they actually get everything out. Right. So there's there's that piece to where they want to lay everything out on the line. And then there's that sense of maturity there to where you can actually balance that out to where you can still tap into that emotion without having to fully go 110 percent with it and just feel drained yeah i don't yeah you don't have to and if if you're experiencing like a sort of catharsis and i've had that experience with certain songs it's like yeah fine like as long as you're not traumatizing yourself (laughs) it's just i don't think that you necessarily if you're if you're talking about a very intense experience or emotion an especially negative one, you don't have to actually physically relive it on stage in front of everyone. I think that's the difference. I think that you can sit in what that experience is and allow it to inform the way that you're singing and and give weight to the meaning of the words, but it's not an exhibition. Right. The connection is going to come from the universality of of those types of experiences and emotions, and people are going to assign their own experiences to what that emotion is in the audience. And people are going to know if it's so strange with music because it's like truth doesn't equal facts in music. Mm -hmm. You don't have to like, I love Tom Waits. Tom Waits tells all these like stories and they're, they're, you know, not factual. They're (laughs) They're very made up. Uh, (laughs) They're very made up, but they're very truthful. Like they sit in like a very honest place with the characters. Same if you're like reading a novel and you can like tell if somebody was like honest with their characters or if they had their character do something that was like clearly just meant to like forward the plot and wasn't really like truthful to who that character was. Right. You know, you know the difference between something that actually happened, that this was a, an emotional point that this comes from a, a place of understanding Mm-hmm. and actually living through that experience rather than just kind of the thought of it or just kind of this high concept of, okay, this is what it should probably sound like and feel like, but I'd never actually lived through this. And you right. can see through some of that veil for sure. Yeah, and I have I have songwriting students, and we talk about that a lot, about how you can write any story you want, any character you want, but, like, you have to write honestly. And, I mean, you're not going to have every experience in the world. It's like, yeah, maybe you need to do a little bit of research if you're going to, like, write about a particular subject. or, But you have to attach it to something right. that you can identify with. I think that makes you connect with an artist more than anything else, is you feeling that they went through something that you did too, mm-hmm. or kind of that same kind of vein, right? When you talk to your students now and that songwriting process, because I think that's interesting for you to be a part of the, the songwriting process and then also looking at the outside in to try and help gauge um, where other people are, how to maybe get them emotionally tied in. Is that something that you think about too? Yeah, definitely. It's interesting because I've had, I've had a lot of students have very like emotional moments in class, mm-hmm. like whether it was voice or, I mean, because you're using your body and like, like you said, you're, you're expressing yourself in a way that doesn't allow you to use the usual mechanisms that you walk through the day sort of like using to mask maybe like how you how you feel on a deep mm-hmm. level. And with songwriting, it's the same thing. It's like sometimes people expose things that they 
maybe weren't overtly choosing to face, but at the same time, it's like they started writing about it. We're not going to, like, go anywhere that somebody didn't already start writing. But once you start writing, sometimes you have to ask questions about, like, where is this coming from? When I use this metaphor, like, what do I really mean? And a lot of times it's just a release. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like (laughs) I have a friend who's a... um, a massage professional and she was like oh somebody cries on my table like every week because it's just a release they're not like terrified or sad or anything like that they're just it's all that stress it's all that stuff that's built up and then yeah that... and I think that that's totally fine too like when you're approaching making art and I think that that's the thing that sometimes people are afraid of but like if you already in your head know what the thing is that you're afraid of <laughs> Then it's already there. Yeah, yeah. You're you're already thinking about it somewhere deep inside you. I mean, it's it's yeah. gonna be in your subconscious, ready to come out a little bit. And it actually has more power over you if you haven't confronted it. Yeah, that's okay. That's interesting because while you were talking, what I'm thinking is that you're you're having these emotional conversations even with your students. So do you feel like there's kind of kind of that therapeutic aspect of, of the songwriting and, and trying to just guide them to a good place and based off your experience. I feel like I hardly do any guidance at all. <laughs> I do like a lot of listening. Okay. And I do sometimes like I ask a lot of questions so that I can listen more. But I generally let people kind of find their own way through through listening and, and through questions. A lot of times people, like, once they just start talking something out, it's like they already knew what they needed to tell themselves. You know, of course I have, like, tips and pointers, like, you don't have to use perfect rhyme. You can use these different types of rhyme, things like that, or, or talking about, like, just for phrasing purposes, mm-hmm. like how many syllables are going to match up with the other verse or something like that or with the music that you wrote. Or, like, what can we do to sort of, like, escalate the tension or to, like build the chorus so it like really like stands out as the main idea of the song but other than that as far as the actual emotional content like I don't feel like I have any business telling anyone (laughs) else's story and and people are generally pretty good at knowing where to go it's like they've already come into the room and said they were going to write a song and once you get kind of close to those things that are like okay well we do some like free writing like what's just coming out and they haven't like gotten up and left. It's like that's they're choosing to be there <laughs> to go in that direction. I think that's a, a fine line to figure out how to be that person that they can listen and then also help them like form the thoughts, I guess. Because that's what it sounds like what you're doing with the songwriting is that you're helping them kind of express what they're doing in a, a more structured way a little bit. Yeah, there's some structure and it's also just creating a time and space that's dedicated to that and like safe to do it in is that uh an idea that you had just as an artist for yourself or is that like a conscious thing that you wanted to do with this could go boom um so that kind of approach it sort of just happened naturally just from writing and collaborating with people and i wanted to say that i think that same i think that same sort of premise applies to just co-writing or collaborating with other artists is that you do you still have boundaries with each other and that you do want to approach things? I, I feel like a lot of people, it's like when you're having a conversation and you're like 
spending the whole time thinking about what you want to say next and you're not actually <laughs> like listening and responding. Yeah. Um, a lot of people approach musical collaboration that way where if, if someone comes in and it's like the entire melody is perfect and it's touching and I, I'm like, this is exactly expressing like this thing that we're writing about. I don't feel the need to be like, well, but I haven't added any notes to it. So let me just do this. Mm, okay. There has to be like space and there has to be, you can't just be like throwing things in there just because like you didn't get to contribute. Right, right. Uh, sometimes it's restraint. That's the better thing. With this Kiko Boom, and, and just to let people know, this Kiko Boom is a 501c3 nonprofit, and it was a totally grassroots start. We were community-funded through um, a crowd fundraiser, and it was the brainchild of my band, The 06, collectively. We were talking about doing a crowdfunder for an album because we played a couple shows. We were all like in other bands and, and kind of cross scenes a little bit. Yeah. So our shows were like surprisingly well attended and we were like wow okay maybe we should record because it's almost it's almost like a low-key super group where you have i like that low-key yeah because it's not i don't don't know i every time i i look at the 06 i'm just like well like what you said the the cross scenes is important but at the same time there i feel like every member of the 06 was a big force in the other bands Mm -hmm. and now everybody's working together and sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't because you can see with other i don't want to say super groups but other groups that have kind of collaborated right that have come from different bands sometimes that collaboration works all the way through or those egos shine and that's a whole other thing so it's cool for me to see that as a as a collective, you guys have not only come together as a band, but with a bigger mission in mind as well to try and help everybody and not just get your music out. That was kind of what we came up with was that we were kind of like, okay, we've got some momentum here. We feel like we've kind of gathered the community to a certain extent. And so what are we going to do with that? Like that's, I, I think you always have to, it's very easy to feel powerless as an artist, especially like an artist who's not like making a ton of money, doesn't mm-hmm. have like a huge name because you're kind of like, oh my gosh, I'm like always just struggling to pay my rent and <laughs> um, and like who's even listening. Um, and so we all, I think it's good to check in and just remind yourself of like where you do have power. And so we were like, what can we do? And the more that we just talked about our own personal experiences and those of people that we new in the music community, we decided to use the first release as momentum to build this Kigo Boom, which is a nonprofit that offers record label services, trainings and workshops, like community outreach type of workshops. Like we did a safer scenes for venue staff with Shauna Potter from War on Women. We're also like bridging into offering more long time long-term sort of like engineering training and also some avenues for like licensing and sync just things to make to facilitate the musical careers of women and non-binary people who are still really really underrepresented in pretty much every aspect of the music industry unfortunately i i think that's fantastic and i I think that's uh it just seemed natural just from the outside looking in because it was just it didn't seem forced it seemed like it was just women that were coming together and being like, this is what we actually deal with. Can we do something with it? 
can we do something, you know, to not only to help us, but to help everybody else too, because we see what's happening. And if, if no one does it, then what are, what are we going to do? We're just going to perpetuate the whole thing over and over again? Right, because then you, you are kind of, you're always making those choices where you're left with, do we want to participate in a bill that or a festival that has 99% all-male acts? Do we want to support that even if it's a good opportunity? And, of course, it's like everybody everybody's always sort of weighing those options, and sometimes you do in, sometimes you don't, sometimes you say something, sometimes you don't. And either one's fine. It's like everybody doesn't have to like, <laughs> like be on the lookout like all the time and have the energy to like fight back all the time. Because it's probably draining, right? Yeah, and that's the great idea around community and collective is that you pass that responsibility around that you're allowed to step back, that you're allowed to take breaks, and that you should be noticing where other people need that as well. Yeah. The other thing that's cool about it and kind of in line with what you're just mentioning is that I've encountered some bias out there from people who seem to think that women can't work together. Right. (laughs) Or that, yeah, that it would never work, that egos would cause a disaster. And so it's it's interesting because I think that our style of work, we've sort of, like you said, organically and also intentionally tried to set up things to suit our needs best, whether or not that's like the traditional hierarchical way to approach things. Mm -hmm. And so like our board has officers because we have to legally, Mm -hmm. but like the way that we function is much more egalitarian. And, and we also kind of take the approach of like, you can't dictate to the community what the community needs. You have to just always be listening and responding. And so we're we're looking to expand our board in the next couple of months That's so great. that we can have more voices and leadership. We're always looking for new ideas and kind of tweaking things. We actually, uh, we sort of changed our mission from what we had at the beginning where we started out with, as like, okay, we're a record label mm-hmm. and we're going to amplify the works of women and non-binary people. And on the side, we're going to do these, these workshops and have other services. And then it became clear that the the real mission was going back to that idea of knowing where the boundaries are, knowing where not to really insert yourself or to step back and allow people to fully explore who they are mm-hmm. and become who they are is more to spark inspiration and then to support people and where that inspiration takes them by offering record label services and workshops. What do you think has been the most difficult part of that process? As far as getting everything together, it's probably a lot simpler than people think because getting a nonprofit is not as hard. It's not. Yeah. I thought I was looking online and I I just kind of started doing it in order to figure out what I was going to need and to maybe hire someone to do it. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, wait, I just did it. I'm done. Yeah. (laughs) They just want me to pay now. Okay. (laughs) Years ago, this is, I want to say almost almost 10 years ago, me and a, a friend of mine that has now since passed started trying to do a nonprofit for music down here. Oh wow. And you go through the whole process and you realize it's not that difficult. You have to form an idea of what you're doing. What what do you want to do, right? You want to be able to give back to the the community in some way or another. Is it through all ages shows? Is it through, you know, giving voices to the the voiceless? Is it the ones that aren't represented, uh, represent, 
yeah, represented. Did I say that right? I don't know. It doesn't matter. So you go through the whole process, and then you think that forming a nonprofit, forming an organization, forming a business, forming all this stuff is such a daunting task. And then you look at it, and it's a couple of buttons that you got to press and a couple of words that you got to put in there, and then you pay someone, and then you got it. It's sustaining it that's the trick. Yeah. So the first thing I have to say is that I did some similar work several years ago. Um, I did a panel called Musica Feminista, and some we did some showcases through that uh, for emerging artists. With I did that with um, several other volunteers. And I stepped back for a long time just because you should never just start a nonprofit without seeing what else is being done to accomplish that mission in the area. It's like if you know that like no one else is like doing this and that there's a need, great. Go ahead. But don't just start a nonprofit. It's like if you have a passion, a true passion for a mission and it's not an ego-driven project, if there's somebody else out there doing it and doing it well and you have the skills to help them out, it's like just throw your efforts into that because funding is competitive and there's not a ton of it and it's best to sort of keep it going into the places where change is actually happening and, and the vision that you see for the world is is being accomplished. That being said, I would say that that's the hardest part. We we started out with a really, really successful crowdfunder that we were just really blown away by the generosity of the community. And, and like you said, it's like hearing people step forward and say, I've been thinking about this. I've been noticing this problem. Mm-hmm. I've been noticing a need for this. And not not just women and non-binary people, there were a lot of cis guys who were coming forward and saying, like, I want to donate because I've seen this as a problem. Like, I've played on so many bills where there were no women and, like, I didn't know what to do about it and or felt like it wasn't, like, my place, my place to, like, fix it. And I want to support you in what you're doing. And that's such an amazing way to be an ally. And just other people who were just, like, I see the need because I love music and I – can't imagine what our musical landscape will be like when more diverse voices are heard, when more diverse narratives are are out there in music. Yeah, what'll what'll kill music more than anything is having it from one voice and from one source and from one sound. Having just pop music where it's one producer for 90 different pop artists, that will that will kill music faster than anything else. So that diversity has to be there because the different sounds have to be there. Because when you're bringing different sounds all the way through from different cultures, from different experiences, and looking at it in different ways, that's that's the biggest thing. Guitars are cool. Drums are cool. But there's so many other things that are out there. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Much. And we, I mean, we tend to like think from a Western perspective. Yeah. And there's so much music out there in the world. And it's all worth listening to and just experiencing and getting a little taste of it i mean even if it turns out to it's the same as like trying like some food it's like just try a little bit you might hate it but i i think you have to try things twice yeah because the initial thing is going to be like whoa every bias that i have is reacting to this but you got to try it twice i had this like really fermented tofu one time well i i actually thought i love tofu and i like fermented things and i like, I like a lot of stinky foods. And 
that sounds really weird. But you know, like pungent yeah, things yeah, pungent that have a lot better. of yeah. a lot of like character um, that's, and flavor. That's the one that you want. Yep. <laughs> but I tried it and I really hated it. And I tried it again. <laughs> I tried it like five times, and I was like, maybe if I put hot sauce on it. And in the end, it was like, this is not for me. Yeah. Honestly, I would probably try it again. Right, just drown it in a different flavor that just spice it up to kill your taste buds enough. <laughs> or if somebody was like, oh, my grandma made this fermented tofu. It's really great. Like, honestly, I'd probably try it again. It's just been in the ground for like 6,000 years or whatever. Ugh. See, that sounds pretty cool. Like, that's pretty compelling. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and like, it's the same. it's the same with music. It's like, I think that... And when I was younger, I was like this, that it's kind of like, oh, I can't listen to this thing because somebody might see me. That's like not who I am right now. Because your brand is way more important to you when you're younger than anything else. Yeah. Your brand and your image, and it's ridiculous. You're finding out who you are, so it kind of makes sense that you're defining yourself that way. But like one of the really great things about getting older is that you let go of a lot of that and you get to experience so many more things and enjoy them. Yeah, it's it's nice. Like, uh, I remember growing up, and then my mom tried getting me to listen to country music as much as she could. And then my stepdad at the time uh, was trying to get me to listen to 80s thrash metal as oh, much wow. as he could. That's like a really nice juxtaposition. It is, but if you're young, you don't understand that. So what I said was no to both, and then went to go listen to punk. And... Uh, it worked out because eventually they're the same sound. It's just country sped up, which is basically thrash metal. <laughs> so it's all the same. It's all the same. And then once I realized that, I was like, oh, yeah, all the bands that I like are just playing like these power chords that were being played with all these other bands. And then some of them have solos, and that's cool. And some of them have double bass, which is also cool. And then... It's a lot of yelling, which is also what I feel like doing. So it was, it was great. It's cool. Like, the more and more you experience, the more you're able to, like, see those cross connections. I always think it's funny that I feel like the metal scene and the bluegrass scene are really similar in that approach to technical perfection and speed and tradition is, like, really parallel. And, like, those are not types of music that you would necessarily, like, put right next to each other and be like, these have a lot in common, but they really do. Right. I was just talking to um, Brian Chiati. Chiati? I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I should. But he, I just interviewed him, and he's in um, a couple metal bands near baltimore thankfully for him he was in a guitar center or how yeah he worked at a guitar center for a while and they had a blue grass jam there like every month so he saw how proficient these dudes were all of the time and it was insane to him because he's he's playing metal and he's looking at this stuff and then he's going back and um i think his his was chet atkins and how when Chet was playing, he was doing sweeps on banjos, on acoustic guitars, on all this stuff. And he was like, I didn't know this was a thing. And then we talked about how if metalheads would break some of their tradition and actually listen to something other than metal, they would understand how ridiculous bluegrass is. They would understand how metal it is. Yes. It's insane. I don't know how... I feel like those are the fastest people with their fingers all the way through. It just doesn't make any sense to me how they move them. 
Yeah, and then you watch people, and it's like it's almost like their the rest of their whole body is so relaxed too. It's yeah. like they're like not even there. Yeah. And I I love that. Like I that's man. Maybe I should start showing that to some of my students because like <laughs> I, for especially like voice students, but instruments too. It's like you tend to hold tensions in different places and like do weird things where you like use your head to conduct yourself in a totally unnecessary way. And like it can be fine, but it can also be distracting. And there's something amazing about seeing someone who looks like they're like literally like meditating while their hand is playing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, like what is a bucket head that doesn't really like move? Uh, and then just the hands go up and down the guitar all the way through. I don't know if you've yeah. seen that. It's yeah. insane. I don't, I don't know how any of that stuff happens. And I've, I've tried. My pinkies don't work. I know that for sure. Oh, see, you got to force your pinkies to do things. That's, you got to like, I don't know. I I wrote this one song that was literally just to make my pinkies do. <laughs> really? Like stretch and like do like bends and things or like things that they didn't want to do. Because it's all muscle memory. Right. So you have to like retrain. Like if you think about the positions that you're asking your hand to go into, it's not a position and especially one where you're exerting any kind of like strength or pressure that you're going to really encounter doing anything else during the day. So, and this, this goes for singing too, because you use all of your like facial muscles and everything to make expressions and talk all day. Then you go into a studio and you're like, why can't I sing? And you're asking muscles that you don't ever think about and don't actively tell them what to do to contradict what they are used to doing every single day. So you just have to like learn what it feels like to place everything in the correct way and then practice enough. This is why practice is important or one of the reasons practice is important is that you're toning your body to accommodate the art that you want to make. Yeah, that's that's perfect. I, I like that a lot. Because it's it's everything. It's the muscle muscle reflex. It's making your parts of your body that you've never known to work actually do stuff, which you wouldn't have thought about because you're not doing this specific activity. Right. Um, I I I think that's fantastic, and I I think that's something also that when you look at it, athletes get talked about a lot, mm-hmm. right? And the controls of their body and and being in tune with their body and and knowing what each muscle does because they're just ridiculous people, right? But a lot of musicians and a lot of artists do the same thing because they're, they're flexing different styles. They're, they're flexing different parts of their brain. They're flexing different parts of their fingers, whatever it is, right? So I think that's overlooked sometimes too. Yeah, and, well, and then like athletes, it's like totally expected that they'll like take care of their bodies as well. Like they get, you know, professional sports massage and have like right. stretching sessions and stuff in like – a lot of that's not taught to musicians at all, and it's how people end up with injuries is just thinking like, oh, I can just do this repetitive motion like over and over as hard as I want without any sort of like self-care involved. Yeah, the next thing you know, you got tendons that aren't, don't work anymore, and you got muscles that all just cramp up, and then your bones stop working because it's, it's just... <laughs> You you don't know what's going on, right? So your your joints stop going through the the motions because you keep doing it and you don't know how to actually take care of your yourself with it. But not as many people are looking up YouTube videos like watching some guy like do some stretches at the No. Side. <laughs> they're they're looking at the ones that are doing ridiculous things on stage and yeah. then also listening to all the stories about being drunk and being on drugs and mm-hmm. just like 
putting your body through the worst imaginable things that you can do to yourself and be like, oh, yeah, that's that's my dream. That's what I want to do. Like, that's that's <laughs> oh. do the opposite. Like, take care of yourself every once in a while, please. Like, that's, right, right. That's, yeah, that's ugh. you. You don't think about that. I think it was it was Ben Tufts that him and I were talking about touring mm-hmm. and how grueling that is. And you've toured all the time all over the place, right? Yeah, I've done a lot of touring, not as much in the past year, but before that, pretty hard and pretty consistently between like 2011 and 2000. Well, yeah, probably just like a year or two ago. And then the 06 just recently did our first tour for about 10 days, and it was so much fun. It was like probably the most fun tour I've ever been on. That's that's impressive because you've been to all over the country. Yeah, yeah, and and we just kind of stuck to the East Coast. So we went sort of to the Midwest and down South. Um, there's a there's a great music scene in Galveston, Texas, and we've played with some really wonderful people there. Uh, we played in New Orleans, and actually, um, one of the bands we played with in New Orleans, we're about to play with here in Hyattsville, Maryland, at Hilltop House on January 17th. Nice. Um, they're called Ghouls, G O O L S, and they're fantastic. And so, you know, I love going out west. I love playing on the west coast. I love playing just driving across the desert. But just as far as camaraderie and having fun and honestly being with people who were kind of like, we need to eat now. We need to eat like full (laughs) meals with vegetables and we need to go to sleep. (laughs) Like some of the time we got we got real silly, too. But it was fun, and there's like there's definitely a sense of like everybody sort of like watching out for each other. And well, when you were first touring, um, did you have that kind of idea of I need to play as many shows as possible and kind of drive through nights and hours and hours and hours to get to the next venue? When I first started touring, I was in a duo, um, which makes touring a little bit easier. But we were living in our car. We were living in a Honda Element. That probably makes things a little bit harder, too. Um, yeah, I mean, it's rough. You can only have a certain amount of things, and you have all of your music equipment, and you're sometimes you're uncomfortable. But I think that you find that being uncomfortable occasionally is not as daunting as you would think, <laughs> that you can live through it. You can right, definitely right. be uncomfortable and come out okay on the other side. And it makes you really appreciate things like hot showers <laughs> and like hot meals that someone else made. Um, so we were booking just as many shows as possible, like pretty much anything we could get, you know, if it paid or even had tips that was right. better because we were just living in the car and driving from place to place and the whole point was just to play. More recently, since I just don't have time to be on the road all the time, and, and I I actually really love that. I'm so, so happy that I had that experience and took some really long tours, like in a bigger van too with, mm-hmm. with more people. But nowadays it's like kind of a more targeted thing where it's sort of like let's find bands and communities that we're going to like develop and grow with and that like we're gonna do show exchanges like that we would love to see come play dc that we would love to go back and play with them again i try to keep driving down to five or six hours in between um it's not always possible like if somebody is offering you an incredible guarantee and you're kind of like we'll just drive there right (laughs) um but in general it's nice to it's nice to keep it 
as brief as possible. That's easier on the East Coast than it is crossing over and on the West Coast because we have so many cities that are in proximity. I mean, like we played in Baltimore last night, but that we could we could have played in D.C. tonight and there would be really no crossover. That's also because everybody stays in their own town for the most part and they don't branch out as much as they should. Um, but at the same time, there's nothing in the Midwest so you just keep driving and driving and driving and driving. <laughs> they they have some things out there. Sure, but they're very <laughs> few and far between. I lived in Chicago for seven years, and there were actually like there was like a lot of cool little towns like in Wisconsin and stuff to drive to and play. I believe you. Um, but yeah, you have to drive a lot yeah, further, yeah. and even on the West Coast, it's like you think <coughs> about towns like in Washington and like. Oregon and then Northern California being close together, but they're only relatively close together. They're they're not, for practical driving purposes, all that close together. And you're driving mostly through the mountains. You're driving through, like, the most beautiful area you've ever seen, and so you don't want to just, like, rush through it. And then when you hit Northern California, it's like you can play a smaller town, but there's a lot of territory to cover before you get to the Bay Area. I think you forget how big California is unless you're in there. Yeah, it's um, very long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I went to San Francisco a few years back, and then just trying to go up to San Jose it was just forever too. It just felt like it was a long time, and then you forget because traffic is such a pain in California, no matter where you're at in California. And the roads are there because they're wide. So you you forget that there's too many people over there. And even though you're driving from town to town and you think that you're going to be able to be okay, the traffic is real. And it's the worst. The traffic is really bad. I don't know. The traffic in D.C. is pretty bad, too. Well, that's because everybody's congested in their own little place. Like, you have literally, like what you were talking about, where Baltimore is only an hour from Mm -hmm. D.C. at most. But between that hour, there's hundreds of thousands of people all the way up and down and they're all on the same time on the same road that you're on. Right, right. And it's the worst. In LA and stuff, it's like, it'll be three in the morning and there'll be a traffic jam somewhere. Why are you out? Go home. (laughs) I I, I never, I never understood it. It just irritated me. But um, I think with, with the East Coast is that nobody planned how cities worked and they're all just like, we're going to just live really close to each other and just expand out all these cities. And then once they finally went over to the West Coast, they're like, oh, yeah, I don't want to be around you. (laughs) They also really created car culture out there, too, though. And that's part of the problem is that the systems, the Bay Area is pretty good, but a lot of the systems for public transportation are not great. No, and we're we're not super good over here, but at at the same time, it's, it's pretty daunting when you have five or six lane highways and there's a backup on that highway and it is a legit parking lot and you got to know where you're going because if it's moving it's moving really fast yeah yeah and that's just going from san francisco to oakland like that's literally just like across a bridge Mm -hmm. and you're in the same boat where it's a five or six lane highway (laughs) and you can't get across the bridge which is just uh I, I was in there. I didn't like it. I didn't. I lived in California for three years in the Central Coast, which is like a small town and didn't have any traffic problems um, in between L.A. and the Bay Area. And it was lovely and beautiful. And I definitely have a 
I have a soft spot in my heart for California. That's fine. I don't. So much sunshine. Ah, yeah, you don't need it. You need that. You, you, <laughs> you need that. Do. Uh, you need you that need vitamin it. D. No. no, you need that doom and gloom. You're just gonna like get one of those like lights and just sit in front of it. <laughs> oh, light, make me healthy. <laughs> uh, I think that light gives you cancer. Oh no! Yeah, so you might you might want to look at that. That's, <laughs> that's that's so funny. When when there's not, I don't know. When when you're from the East Coast, you always talk about seasons, right? You always mm-hmm. be like, I love all my seasons in one week. And uh, when you're on the the West Coast, you always talk about sunshine and how nice things are and how beautiful things are. And then you realize that if you go back and forth, that there are good parts on both of them, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Sure. But uh, too much sun is a thing, and I don't like it. And I want doom and I don't gloom. believe in too much sun. I don't like it. No, it's too much. It's too much. I want I want to be able to feel like the the weather is how I feel. And that's mm-hmm. at, that's at any given time. I've met a lot of people who really like overcast, like sort of and I mean like if you look at how many people like love Portland and like sometimes Portland's sunny. And somehow every single time I've gone to Seattle or Portland, with like very few exceptions, it's been really sunny. <laughs> really? Yeah. And then and people it's not are just like, like five minutes of that one day. Well, and it's no, and it makes it really hard because it's like, oh my gosh, this place is so wonderful. And then people are like, Yeah, just so you know, it's not like this all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, Yeah, but the last time I was here it was like this. And they're like, No, really, it's really not like this all the time. <laughs> but there's yeah. something for everyone and and that's I think that's kinda I I like when people do that with their music scenes too. When people I actually I kind of love when I see people being like, our music scene's the greatest. Like, even if it's, like, the smallest music scene and it's just, like, two cover bands and, like, a punk band that can hardly play. It's just, like, there's (laughs) something so wholesome about, like, the local pride of, like, these are our musicians. We support them. I love to see that a lot more than I love to see the common sort of just like oh our scene sucks like it's like okay well what are you doing about it then that's like being like oh i'm sitting in poop it's like well go change your pants (laughs) that nothing's ever been more accurate than that statement (laughs) because when when they do complain and when when they do say oh our scene sucks there's nowhere to play well go make something happen like go what what are you doing? Yeah, Get exactly. Yeah. Or, or like pose it as a question. And I, like, I guess that's, it's a little unfair because it's like, I can understand people getting frustrated. Like I've also had the exact same frustrations as like every other musician where you're kind of like, oh, how do I get more people to my show? But I feel like it's different if you're asking, huh, how can I get more people to my show? Rather than like, oh, this place sucks and nobody wants to see music yeah. or no one's supporting my music. It's yeah. like, that's just a really that's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy to be that defeatist and to not really genuinely be curious about what it is that people want and what compels people and how you can support them and how that can be a mutual thing that's how you grow a scene is one person goes to one person's show and that then that person comes to their show and like they bring a friend and then they like all meet up at an open mic cuz they had a really good time and then like they bring two more friends like that's a music scene. Yeah. And you can exclude yourself pretty quickly from that scene if you kind of overreach or if that self-fulfilling prophecy is a real thing of all this negative stuff and, oh, I, I don't know why no one listens. I'm so good. What is going on? You know, 
that's that's a another part of it where if you're not if you're not able to swallow some of your pride and I th- I think like what you're talking about is make connections with the actual people mm-hmm. that are in the scene and develop a community rather than being like oh well I should have fans upon fans upon fans you're not doing any of the work so you need to go ahead and like maybe yeah. grease some elbows but real make real connections that's, right. I think that's the bigger thing is down down in Southern Maryland, and I think it's the same same wherever, right? Is that there is for for us down here, there's a resurgence of those same people that I was talking about that have been playing for like 20 years. They're all going to the same places, so that community has grown mm-hmm. because those connections have grown, and it's a way more welcoming community at this point now, which is fantastic. The flip side is there's there's not a whole lot of new ones, but at the same time, it's not scattered like it used to be 10, 15 years ago. Everybody knows each other now. Yeah, which that's really cool. Takes a while if you're in a a more suburban rural community, yeah. right? Because everything is so spread out. I think it's expedited in a city where you have a lot more connections because you see more people because it's mm-hmm. a lot more densely populated and you, you can see those people going to the you recognize those people going to the same shows over and over and right over again, even right? if you've never talked to them it's right. like oh yeah it's that person yeah, <laughs> I see yeah, all yeah. The time. and honestly a quiet supporter that goes to everything it's not the worst thing no that, absolutely that's not. fantastic uh you wish kind of sometimes that you would they would come out and talk to you but yeah i mean i don't know i don't want to require that everyone be extroverted but there's just there's something to be said for like like you said like kind of Participating at like your own comfort level and based on like what you kind of want to develop and and get out of those relationships and and oh I wanted to go back to something you said where you were kind of like why aren't people listening to my music it's it's super good because I feel like every single article that you read that a lot of times they're like well make sure your music's make sure your music's getting better like probably people aren't coming to your shows because your music could, and that's that could be true and we should all be like always assessing that and making Mm -hmm. sure that we're honing our skills and like making the art that we want to make. But I think that when someone says us, like you might be a hundred percent right. Your music might be really, really good. No, it might be really good. And, (laughs) and it doesn't matter to a certain extent. It's like, that's not humans are not super good at just as individuals collectively like suddenly assessing things and deciding on their quality based on like artistic criteria (laughs) unless you're like really setting out (laughs) to do that that's that's not generally the way other than like a couple people being like man this was really good and bringing some people that is always gonna 100% work for everyone so I I think um I'm sorry to to cut you off oh, but okay. i think um even with your mission for this could go boom i believe that there is a bigger thing where people sometimes a lot of times don't critique work based off the merit right and will critique work based off the people that they know and that can be a bigger issue where the community has to be there and you know, lifting voices and and making sure that work is seen based off of the merit rather than, you know, who you know. But 
if that bias is real, human bias is always human bias. And that's that's something that you have to tackle, I think, all day, every day. Absolutely, because I think that you're totally right that that's a perfect example of why that argument of like, but my music's so good, is is that there are tons and tons of people writing and playing great music who've been marginalized for a very long time. And I think that you have to, you have to also like be one of those people that someone knows. It's like, do you know a really great band that like everyone should hear who's like having trouble like getting out there, getting shows where anyone's going to hear them? It's like, put them on your bill. Hook them up with like a friend's band. Like look for the places where you can be the person who someone else knows at least as much as you're looking for like someone who right. you know. And it's got to be a conscious effort, right? It's got to be a concerted effort. It's got to be something where you're actually doing something instead of saying, oh, yeah, that band's really good. It sucks that they don't play anywhere. They just can't get shows. Well, help them. Yeah. You know, support your, your fellow person. Especially if it's like really great music. And particularly, I think that that extends to what we were just talking about, like with Tesco Go Boom. So we do, we've done... Over the past year and a half, a showcase monthly. And we're we're about to change that up this year. We're going to do some more targeted events in partnership with some other organizations. But we, I think we've, we've featured like over 100 different acts, like cross genre, mostly from the like D.C. area, but also Baltimore, Philadelphia, Atlanta. Like we've had, we've had many touring acts as well. And... I think that just creating that space for bands that you, you may not have heard or you may not have heard, um, this is something that happens a lot, and it's one of those things that I don't think anyone does intentionally, but if you've got a whole bill of bands and one of the acts is female-fronted, they will end up opening. That's unfortunate. Yeah. A lot, like, a lot of the time, and in... And it'll happen even if it doesn't musically make sense. If they're, like, louder than the other bands. Yeah, that's that's annoying. Um, when, I was, when I was consistently booking shows, I always booked them uh, to basically crescendo, to, to end with a bang. Have a, maybe an acoustic opener and then build up from there. Because I, I like... I like ears ringing at the end of it. That's fun, right? <laughs> um, but at the same time, when you are actively bringing all the way from acoustic acts, solo acoustic acts, all the way to indie rock, all the way up to heavy metal, you're crossing genres. You're you're getting different communities in there because everybody's doing different stuff, and you're you're able to realize that people are people, and then they're they're cool too, no matter what kind of music that they play, right? Yeah, I love cross-genre shows personally. Like, I've been to some bad ones where it was just like somebody just literally put every band that contacted them like on the bill <laughs> without thinking about it. But like you said, like when it's sort of like the night's been sort of crafted to yeah. go in a certain direction or there's like some thematic component about the music that is going to probably be enjoyable to everyone there, but it's not every band kind of like – all these bands sound like Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing that you can do, I think, and this is this is just me talking. Uh, if you have a, a five or six metal band show that all play the same kind of metal, mm-hmm. they can all be individually great. They're gonna sound the same at the end of the night. 
And it's the worst thing that you can do to yourself because there's no dynamics in there. And it's all the same chug, 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 awesome vocals, crazy ass leads, double bass all the way through. And they're wonderful musicians. It's going to be boring. And that's that's the problem uh, that unless you're throwing yourself into a crowd and enjoying getting beaten down into a mosh pit, it's it's just not going to be fun on the outside looking in. And that I think if I had noticed that, because coming from Southern Maryland, I only have a small pool of bands, right? Mm-hmm. Going into bigger cities, you have a much bigger pool to choose from. So if I would have seen and been conscious about it, as far as what you're saying, nine times out of ten, a female front of the band is going to be an opener. Like that would irritate me so much because it, <laughs> musically it doesn't make sense. The flow of the show wouldn't make sense because if you have, if you have, like to your point, if you have someone that's heavier, say it's like a, a sharp tooth. I think that's the band. That's like a, this heavy metal band and a female fronted singer. You don't want to put that up front like that. That's terrible. Unless the whole show is like that, maybe. But at the same time, well, but if you're gonna have like I don't know, a guy on acoustic doing like Jack Johnson covers after that, get it's out like- of here. No, no. Uh, yeah, that that also will take the wind out of a show all the way through. Like that really hype, popular, not popular, um, energetic band, and mm-hmm. then going into an acoustic or just a slow. I remember watching, uh, I went to Ted Leo and the pharmacist, um, broken social scene and bell and Sebastian. I was really excited for it. And this was at Meriwether, right? Ted Leo is all energy. Oh yeah. All energy. And his band is so good. So good. They opened and then broken social scene played. And I was like, I'm done. I'm leaving. This is the worst experience that you can have because you have all of this high energy Mm-hmm. All of all of this great feeling, and then you just drop. And broken social scene is very much moody. Like you're you're gonna be in there. There's not there's not a whole lot of movement. And Bell and Sebastian is kind of the same way. So didn't make sense. I wanted to see Ted Leo. I mean, all the time. But that that would irritate me musically more than anything else. Where you have that high energy band, and then go to an acoustic. And it that's- works sometimes. I've seen it. I've seen it work where there was like actually like a really good mood shift and it closed out the night in a really nice way to like really, really bring things down. But yeah, I think that has to be, it depends on, first of all, like how compelling the artist is. Like I, I believe that the performances I saw like Elliot Smith do that like he probably could have closed out any show. Everybody in the room would have listened. And it's quiet. Yeah. <laughs> it's quiet. But, and I've seen just even like on a local level, I've seen that happen and work, but it, it's it got to be, you you can't, you can't just throw bills together. <laughs> no. Anybody that does that, just pay attention to what you we're saying. thinking about it. And al- this goes for albums too. This is, this is one of the only problems I have with the culture of like singles and because of streaming is that that's cool and it's great. And like, I love like just learning about a band because I just heard like their one really cool, like single that came out and that's fantastic. If you're going to put an album together, like think about how the (laughs) songs are going to flow into each other. It's like they, you can't just like line them up by like, I think this will be the popularity of, of the singles as they come out. I just, you're listening to an album and it's like, oh, you put two songs next to each other that like 
really sound exactly the same. They're like in the same key and the same tempo. And it doesn't make sense. Um, that is that is one question that I'll have for you with the the O six and um, what you're looking at for the future. Um, based off of what I've seen so far from you guys and what I've heard and the album itself, you're still finding your cohesive voice, mm-hmm. I think, um, because of all the different influences that each member brings. It's probably a little bit more difficult to get a more cohesive sound and a more like a one unit voice. Um, I don't know if, if that's something that you guys have thought about, but I like I like hearing the different influences throughout the the music and throughout the album. Is that something that the writing is is coming out a little bit? I don't know if you have started writing more songs and and been conscious about that at all. Because it's it's something that I noticed through bands that they'll have like one or two uh, releases that you know they're kind of a little bit more sporadic, and then they finally figure out, okay, this is what I want my guitar tone mm-hmm. to sound like. This is what I really want everything in. Then they kind of settle in. Is that something that is happening, or I think so. We've we've actually only been a band for about a year and a half. Yeah, I thought, yeah, it hasn't been long. No, it feels it like it, long. but it hasn't been long. I know, it's like we started at a, we started This Could Go Boom and released the record and um, have been on tour and done all these showcases and done like several workshops this year. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, oh wait, it's really, it hasn't even been two years yet. Um, but I think, I think that's true. I think that like, we don't want to squash the fact that the band is unique and that there is not one front person or right. one main writer. And some of the songs have been sort of like one person mainly wrote the song and brought it in. Um, and then some of the songs have been, have come out of jams together. And so I think that just continuing to play together and mature is going to help with that sort of like, oh, okay, this is what we're we're all sort of funneling our energy in this direction. And I think that as individual writers, I know I've written things before and been like, eh, I don't really know. I'm not going to – I don't feel like this one's going to be in mm-hmm. a 16. Um, which is nice to have, like, choices in different places to put things. But I also think it, it's not just that we're not sort of, like, following that, like – I think most bands sort of have – one sort of like musical creative leader. Force, right, yeah. Right. And and everyone else is sort of like acting in a support role. And we just really don't have that. And now it's become kind of um a philosophy and sort of that is our sound is kind of exploring what that looks like. Especially because it does play into that dynamic of like people thinking that women can't work together. <laughs> <laughs> um and so I think that we, we just They're need time. So emotional. So emotional. <laughs> Look at all the wars we've started. Yeah. Um, we just need time to explore that stuff together, and I think that 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 will definitely begin to change things. And then I also think, on top of it, it's just like we were saying before. It's like when you're in your 20s, you might set out to be like, "Oh, these are the five bands I love, and they all sound the same, and my band's going to sound like that too." And so part of it isn't even just that there are multiple writers it's that we all have like a depth of musical experience at this point that you're right we're bringing a ton of influences to it and i think that that's also an important part of our sound because music is so heavily marketed and so 
funneled towards target audiences and the music that kind of cuts through very often isn't um, exploring a lot of uncharted territory or at least isn't geared towards um, just a musical aesthetic. It's more sort of like, okay, well, this song will sound great in a commercial that's geared towards like people who are 25. Right. And and there's a lot of that. And then if you think about how few women and non-binary people are represented within that, it's almost like it's even more because there's a smaller sample set. And so sometimes it can feel very much like there are four types of music that women play. <laughs> um, and they have to be those certain ones. It's like... Was it like pop, acoustic song, singer, songwriter? Like a riot country. girl kind of sound. Yeah. 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 No, there are, there, are probably, there are more than four, but you know what I'm saying. It's just like there are sort of these like... But that's Yeah, that's kind of the, the staple for it, right? Is that that's what... When, when you think about it, like a woman artist... Uh, like a music, a mm-hmm. musician. That's what you're you're thinking about. You're thinking about the, the kind of the big four genres. I think hip hop and um, and R and B are becoming uh, a bigger with with just the Cardi B with um, that that kind of um, injection into the mainstream, injection into the the main culture. That this is finally like, oh yeah. Women can do this too. They're not just going to sing love ballads or right. be sexualized with pop music. Um, yeah, I, I think you you hit that. Like, there's there's really like four things that that we think about, and we probably should have more of an open mind. Uh, but we're not good people. <laughs> so no, do? we're perfectly fine people. It's just kind of how you, sometimes you have to think about like how your brain functions and is meant to function, so yeah. that you like don't get eaten in the jungle or separated from your people. Well, stereotypes are real and they're perpetuated. So, that's it's all it's all nonsense. If you're if you're not being able to open your mind up a little bit and actually listen, which I think is the kind of the biggest piece mm-hmm. um from what it sounds like this could go boom is more of that listening piece and trying to amplify the the that not not necessarily even the voices, but the actual listening piece. Like that's mm-hmm. that's the biggest tool that people can can kind of bring to to their communities is to actually hear everything instead of dictate. Yeah, and it's it's nice to kind of like go in and sort of break down like what that means sometimes because I think it's really easy to sort of dismiss contemporary music and just be like, well, what's the big deal? It's just music, but. If you think about, first of all, think about like all the ways that we use music or how often you hear music. It's like it informs how you shop and consume things. Um, it accompanies film and and basically shapes like how you view those stories that you're taking in. Um, we celebrate together with music. We mourn together with music. Um, we like connect with other people socially through music. Um, there there are just a ton of ways. If you just go through like one week and try to notice every single time you interact with music and how significant that is, and then think about how music has informed your memories, like how significant events have been like formed by have some music attached to them. So if you think about it that way and then think that a huge percentage of that music 
that's been a force throughout your entire life in the past and in the present was written by people with very similar experiences in the world and that people with other experiences were excluded from that, it it does become pretty significant. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest thing that you've learned through music and through uh, This Could Go Boom? I think that I had some concepts about collaboration, working in community, and what leadership means in that context, um, and what leadership means in a less hierarchical structure, and that the actual practice of those things is very different than a vague concept, (laughs) Um, and that you're constantly needing to sort of assess where you are emotionally and if you're burned out or if you need help or if you need to communicate or if you just have to take a lot more responsibility for knowing what your part is and then also like letting all of your people who are working with you sort of also know and getting that from them too, like asking people questions and checking in with people Um, because this is all volunteer run. We're, you know, we're functioning as governance and uh, we're we're the record label. We're sending out records. We're working on like press stuff. And, and then and then it's beyond like you're just your network of like the people you're working with directly. It's like then you've got all the musicians that you're working with and you've got other organizations who have similar values to you and you're all working towards the same goal and you you just have to work in a way of balance of of making sure that you're okay, not burned out, not super angry all the time, right. and and that you're watching out for those things um, for the rest of your community as well, and checking in with them and seeing what can be what can be done and accomplished. And then the other really hard thing I think is that bias is really strong, and we're all always playing into those things. And and people, you know, a lot of times people get defensive and they're like, well, I'm not a guy who's sexist. And I'm like, well, here's the thing. I'm sexist. Right, right. Like, I have deeply seated biases about gender. And even though they're negative sometimes about the gender that I am, like, I know that they're in there and that they exist. And those can affect your actions. And so that's another that's another thing that's just um, you constantly have to sort of be aware of and and able to not get defensive about and and be sort of proactive about working on. I like it. What do you think keeps you driven the most to continue pursuing music as a whole, but also your your mission with uh, This Could Go Boom? I think they're so interlocked for me. I just never, I don't know. I always wanted to be in a band. I always wanted to like, include people (laughs) i never really i i and maybe this is why i'm not like some famous pop star or something um no because my music's so good (laughs) no but i've just never like wanted i've never defined success as individually sort of ascending in a way that was non-inclusive and didn't 
do anything to fulfill sort of a better vision of the world, um, whether that be musically and artistically or socially. And so pursuing living a life as a musician and trying to carve a way to make that be a good enough way to live in the world and like deserve to eat food and stuff. Right. Um, as well as cultivating an atmosphere where, where diverse voices are, are sought out and cherished and valued is it's all just kind of interlocked for me. And I can't see not pursuing that. I've been playing music my whole life and, at this point, pretty much decided that I kind of just have to, and maybe that's just compulsive. But <laughs> well, you were a rock star at four, right? That's, right, that's... right. <laughs> no, I did. So <laughs> you were asking me if I had stage fright. When I was four, we went to play um, this like folk theater, and I was like four or five, and my mom had made me this like long dress with like an apron kind of thing over it, and the crowd was mostly elderly people, I think. And for some reason, like, right before we went on stage, I took my shoes off. And my mom was like, where are your shoes? And I was like, I felt like this would be more authentic. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went out and, like, I used to sing this song that's... How did you know that word? I don't what? know. I was pretty precocious. <laughs> I went out and, like, I I did this song. It's on Johnny Cash's, like, list of, like, the greatest songs that Roseanne uh-huh. Cash... Um, it's The Orphan Girl. And it is a, it's a tearjerker. It's a really sad song. It's about this orphan girl, like, going to this rich man's door in the snow and, like, begging for, like, some place to be warm and just, like, a crust of bread. And he turns her away, and then in the morning she's dead in the snow. And it's, like, really, it's really sad. Uh, it's really sad. Um, it says, like, but her soul's fled away to its home where there's room and there's bread for the poor at the end. And so like, I mean, being a kid and just being me and never having been any any other age, I don't think that I was just like I'm singing this beautiful song and my mom, my parents were like, "Oh my gosh, all these old people were like crying." Like right. so, And I like now and I look back at it and I'm like, "Oh, cuz I was a little kid and yeah, I was singing yeah. it with no shoes you were the orphan. on." <laughs> oh. All right, I, I I think that's it. That's fantastic. And that's how you manipulate an audience. <laughs>